I've made, no, uh, I've made no mystery of the fact that I'm a universalist. I think that everybody is going to heaven whether they want to or not. Uh, and I know that there are also good ways and bad ways to be a universalist, to be somebody who proclaims that, yes, in fact, God is powerful enough to save everybody. And anybody who would claim to limit God's mercy or power is doing God a disservice. But as I said, there's bad ways to be a universalist. I once was dear friends with an aged Catholic priest. He was really more into sort of like, he was at the age where I think they transitioned from being a Catholic priest to like a Catholic wizard. Like he, he, was, he was an older fellow. And uh, he was telling me this story because he saw me as, I think he thought I was like 14. Uh, I was 35. Um, but he said that a member of his parish had come to him with a deep uh, concern about one of their children who had been found listening to rock and roll music. And I thought I was 1968 and I was sitting in a parlor someplace. But he told me how he comforted this uh, very uh, kind member of his church. I think it was their grandchildren that had been listening to rock and roll music. I don't know what they were listening to. I didn't ask. I didn't think he would know. But he shared with me his little trick. Because this member was worried that the music was satanic. And Catholics take that sort of thing very seriously. And he said, fear not. For God is the author of all music. And so even music that tries to be satanic or demonic is written by the hand of God. And because God is a Catholic, all music is Catholic. The member left feeling very good about this. and That's a very bad way to be a universalist. Uh, but it was kind of interesting. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about universalism and this idea that whether we want to or not, we're all bound up in this thing together. But I want to make it clear that in no way am I diminishing the faith of others or those of no faith. I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. There are a thousand different paths to the wheel of life. There are a thousand different wellheads that we drink from to receive the water of life. So with that brief disclaimer, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. All right, beloved, let us pray. Eternal one, made flesh in our presence today, empower us to do your will and to hear your word on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. A lot of preaching in progressive Christian churches, uh, it turns into kind of moralizing signposts to attempt to kind of adjust our path back toward the way of Jesus Christ. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want us to be very focused on this world. Remember that Jesus isn't fire insurance. Jesus didn't come to earth simply to die to get us into heaven. But I don't want to be reading letters to the editor up here either. I think that it is beneficial to remember the importance of our baptism vows, our marching orders, covenants with one another. But lately we've been having a little bit of a come to Jesus talk in our seminaries about what the point of preaching actually is. Remember, this is an auditory uh, uh, medium. This is, this is basically, we're in the digital age and this is like AM radio up here. But Rob Bell in his new book uh, wrote, he wrote a new book titled, what is the Bible? I think that tells you a lot about his opinion of his, himself. What is the Bible? As though we haven't been writing about that for 2,000 years. Now, he wrote that um, the Jesus message is first and foremost an announcement of who you are. 
If you start with instructions and commandments and things that we've got to do, people are mistaken into thinking that God loves us because of what we do or how religious or moral or good we are. That's not the gospel. Gospel is the announcement of who God insists you are. There's this fascinating turn that Jesus has in his message today where he says if you've got some intransigent member of your fellowship that's being a real jerk to everybody, how you're supposed to treat that person, you know? And uh, it's fascinating to me because it closes with if they still refuse to listen, despite all of your efforts, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. And for so many years, the church has read that to mean banish them from your presence, disfellowship them, or whatever. It's absolutely garbage because we know exactly how Jesus treated outsiders and tax collectors. He went to them. He loved them. He washed their feet. He broke bread in their homes. So when Jesus says we have some intransigent member, some person who disagrees with us or whatever, and they're getting up to all sorts of, uh, you know, business, we've got to go to their house and make dinner with them. <laughs> Jesus says love them all the more. Love them all the more. Because the gospel isn't about how we're supposed to act. It's about who we are. And that is what we've forgotten. Despite the fact that Jesus gives us instructions, despite the fact that he's speaking to us through his holy wisdom, he's speaking to his disciples in a time when the church doesn't even exist. No such thing as the church. It hadn't been born yet. He's speaking to us today prior even to the resurrection events. So he's talking about a thing. He calls it in the Greek, I mean, he didn't speak Greek, the Bible's in Greek, but the word is ecclesia, which just means the way. Just means this is the way, way of being. The church hasn't been born yet. It's yet to draw its first breath. He's throwing these words over the horizon into the future for us. In the interest of understanding what we ought to do with this wisdom that he just gave us, I want to focus on what we are first. And so I need to talk about specifically what kind of creature we are. But to do that, I have to talk about ants. Yes, little bugs. You've all seen ants. I'm obsessed with ants. I love ants. A little boring backstory. I was given a book uh, when I was young. It was by a British ecologist named James Lovelock. And it was written in 1979. It was called Gaia, A New Look at Life on Earth. And I also was into books with spaceships on the cover. And I read way too many of those growing up. Um, Some of us grow up reading books with spaceships on the cover. Some of us grow up reading books with dragons on on the cover. I think we can all come together. It's all good. But it was called, it was by Werner, uh, Werner Vinge, this work of fiction called A Fire Upon the Deep. And both of these books very subtly talk about um, something that we call a superorganism. An organism or a creature that's made up of a lot of different pieces and parts. And uh, another word is distributed intelligence. Right? This is a, this idea that we can't all know everything, but if each of us knows a little bit of piece of the whole, then when we get together, we're able to figure stuff out. Big ideas for an eight-year-old kid. But I was fascinated, obsessed with the idea that something really small could play a role in something 
larger, wiser, and stronger than itself. Somebody else then handed me, providentially, E.O. Wilson's book called The Ants, and uh, that sealed the deal. Been nuts about ants ever since. Um, now, I'm not really into ants individually, but the ant colonies are fascinating. I'd probably be really hip on bees, too, but I don't like getting stung. But th this idea of a superorganism is, is it's amazing because it can accomplish impossible things. How much do you know about the geology of the state of Michigan? We're literally standing on a coral reef right now, or sitting, I suppose, in your case. This was an ocean millions of years ago. And in that ocean was the greatest and largest coral reef that had ever existed or would ever exist anywhere on the face of the earth. It was shaped like a mitten, you know, like a pokey part on the top. That was a coral reef. And it, all of that transformed into the limestone and the bedrock that is now Michigan. If it weren't for that reef, there'd just be one big lake where we're at right now. So a single colony of driver ants in the African Sub-Sahara. In one day, that one colony of ants can consume all of the plant matter in an entire acre of land. It happens over the course of a few hours. Uh, they swarm up out of the ground and then they just eat everything. Plants, leaves, bugs, even like snakes and rabbits and stuff. Absolutely terrifying. But then it goes back into the ground. It's like a group of uh, teenagers at a pizza party. Just eats everything and goes away. Superorganisms are everywhere. Colonies of coral, as I just said, beneath the sea. Hordes of ants on the savannah. Termites in the walls of a house. They're unpleasant. I mean, it'd be nice if superorganisms were made up of, like, like kittens. <laughs> like a swarm of kittens ah, descending upon me. Oh, no. They're butterflies, you know. But the, uh, the individual in that colony represents something that is important, but that is just one small piece. Um, they're not nice, perhaps, but they're powerful. And uh, it's divided up into labor, workers and soldiers and growers and gleaners and caregivers. There's usually some kind of queen. If you put the pieces of the metaphor together, you, you probably jump into the conclusion that I'm going to say that the church is the superorganism and, and Jesus is a queen bee. You know, that's, uh, you're skipping too far ahead. Um, I mean, Jesus is definitely a queen, uh, but not that, that kind. So. We'll pause for a second. The church is not the superorganism. That's giving the church a little bit more credit than perhaps she deserves. The words of Jesus Christ today, he says to us, Truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it'll be done for you by God in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. A lot of this time, we take this teaching to mean that like, whenever two of us you know, clasp hands piously in prayer together, there's this sort of simmery, shimmery ghost Jesus he like shows up, he puts his little shimmery ghost hands you know, over ours and prays with us. And that's how it gets illustrated on the internet a lot. 
And have you seen the images of like a, like a, like a guy at work, you know, he's like praying, like Jesus is like putting his arm over his shoulder. It's not, not what Jesus says. Broadly, organically, he's teaching us about who we are when we are gathered together. The church is not the superorganism. The church is maybe like a hive, whatever you call it. The superorganism is Jesus Christ himself, completely resurrected in the flesh, acting on the world as a surgeon acts on a patient anesthetized on the table, acting on the world to save it, both individually and collectively, and saving the world perhaps from the world itself in a powerful way. For human beings, just like those driver ants, are capable of consuming this entire creation. When we're together in this thing, in this ecclesia, in this way, we are quite literally a part of his body. No one can say that we share some sort of perfect distribution of strength or intelligence or faith or critical thinking or good humor or cheerfulness, whatever. Individually, nowhere near as powerful and wise, as humble and hospitable as our Savior. We can't do it on our own. It doesn't matter how many times we look down at the little yellow rubber bracelet, squint our eyes and think, what would Jesus do? We can't do it alone. This is why it is so offensive to me when churches exclude not because I think that the church ought to be some sort of happy, clappy band of people who, uh, who want to like, be revolutionary in the sense that we just uh, show hospitality to everybody. It's much more serious than that. A church that throws people out or excludes them is quite literally slamming the door in the face of Jesus Christ. How on earth they expect to accomplish all that he's asked of us? And... God help us. We know many of us from our own experiences having been turned out of other churches, having been turned away from movements, either explicitly or implicitly, we hunger for Jesus just as much as anyone in those doors. Why ought we to be turned out and shunned, treated like outsiders, when Jesus says we're supposed to treat one another as though we are best beloveds? That's why it's offensive to me. It, bre- it breaks the church. So collectively, we are him. Isolated, we can't be the body of Christ. We just can't do it. But together here, where, and wherever we go out from this place, we are that distributed intelligence. We can't do it alone. He didn't say, I want to be clear, he did not, and I checked the Greek, he didn't say wherever one or two or three gather in my name, uh, where two or three says, uh, sunago is the actual sunago is the Greek word that's used. It means to like pull together, like you would pull together grains of rice or wheat. He doesn't say that he shows up like a spooky ghost. He doesn't say wherever two or three are gathered, it is like I'm there, or it's as if I was there, or I'm there, you just can't see me. I'm a spooky ghost. He says wherever two or three are gathered. I am there, in the most literal sense of the word. 
We say to you in the words of Paul, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're not saying that it's a metaphor. Paul doesn't ever say, it's as though you are the body of Christ. No, he's speaking quite literally. So then, who are you? Who are you? Well, you are the resurrection. You are the body of Jesus Christ. You are the second coming of Jesus Christ, who has come into the world for the salvation of the world. And if that feels like a big responsibility, I get it. Yeah, it is. I think that's why he tells us that we shouldn't worry. Because every time he gives us one of these commandments, one of these impossible ideas, he also tells us, but do not be afraid. Do not worry. All will be well. Our contributions to this, they're teased and separated out. They seem small. But you put them together and it will shake the foundation of the world. You are a part of this body. When we choose to exclude as a church or a movement, when we shame people, when we condemn them, it is like a part of the body saying to the other, I have no need for you. That's not how it works. We need you. You are a body. Together we're incomplete without you. And again, um, it is critically important that you know this. You know who you are. You are literally a part of the body of Christ. All that you do or do not do, all that you have or do not have, all that you bind or loosen, all of this is part of something that is greater than any of us. And you're not simply a child of God, though we sing those words so often. When you decide to put your hand on the gospel plow, you are a part of the body of God changing the world, as it is in heaven, so it may be on earth. So, all right, we're not ants. We're part of something bigger. Do you know what you are? Do you know that you are the elements of the universe? Every molecule in your body was forged in the heart of a star billions of years ago. All of those pieces of you were called together to witness the universe. You're the eyes and the ears, the heart and mind of creation itself. The only one to give names to the animals. The only ones to look up to the stars and wonder. The only ones to open up the insides of atoms, pour out understanding into the creation. Why then would it be such a profound surprise for us to learn that we are literally the means by which God is operating on the creation? We are the means by which God is saving this thing. Implements in the hands of a skilled surgeon. To learn that we are the hands of the Creator, created for such a time and purpose as this. Bound up together. So no one can be left outside of that work. We need everyone. Regardless of our age, our ability, our faith or lack of faith, color of our skin, the love in our heart, the gender in our head, sickness in our health, poverty or wealth, each of us is a part of the body of Christ. And there is nothing that we need to do specifically besides surrender to the knowledge that we are so, so important to God. You have 
no idea how much God loves you. I overheard a conversation between two mystics at a retreat center 15 years ago, both of them aged and wise, soaking in prayer until it was in their bones, and one turned to the other and said, did God tell you anything about me today? And the second said, oh yes, God told me that she's not sure she could be God without you. I think that uh, we invented the divisions between us, not God. We certainly invented the scarcity out there in the world, not God. We created the systems that seek to cleave body part from body part. We invented the machines that unweave the fabric of our common humanity. These are not from God. They are devices that we created to pull apart the body of Christ, to wrench the bones from their sockets and the flesh from the bones in order to commodify a human being, in order to take a piece of God and turn it into a cog in a machine that serves mammon. That's not what we were created to do. We also no longer have to accept that this is a part of our way of life, that this separateness that this commodification of our labor, of our work, of our efforts, we don't have to accept that this is a part of life at all. Jesus says we can turn our back on it, walk away from it. So don't worry over much about what you must do. Don't think too much about how you must act. But live in the knowledge that you are irrevocably a part of the body of God. Trust it. And repeat it to yourself as many times as necessary. And know that no matter what, no matter what, you are critically important to God and to God's mission. No matter what. So I'll ask you then, in the words of that mystic, do you have any idea how much God loves you? I think it's important to know, but I also think it's kind of impossible to know. I think God loves us as much as a person can love their own life or the life of someone they love. Enough to go into death and conquer death forever. Enough to change everything. So don't worry, church, on this, our homecoming Sunday, don't worry too much about what you have to do. If today's the first time anyone's told you this, then let it be the first of a thousand. You are a beloved, beloved part of God. You are fiercely, wondrously made. You're part of something that is greater than any of us can imagine. Think on that in this week and leave everything else behind. Be liberated and be in love with God, who loves you more than you could ever know. Praise God. Amen.